0: This is the second message in a new series for us at Burlington, entitled Knowing the Truth. To know the truth, as we said last time, is to hold the hand of God himself as he guides us through the maze of our lives. And last week we looked at the truth about the gospel. Paul makes some great claims about the gospel, the good news of jesus christ and we looked at this verse i'm not ashamed i'm not ashamed of the gospel why because it is the power of god what for for salvation of everyone who believes And you remember from last time that we said, firstly then, the gospel is the power of God. As Rome was boasting in all its glory, Paul wrote to them and said, I want to boast in something even greater than your power. And remember, they were the greatest power on earth. Boasting in their glory, Paul says, I want to boast in something greater still. And that is the power of God. And for Paul, where was that power best seen, best made known? Not in creation, we might think it would have been in creation, but not for Paul, God's power was best seen, best made known in the gospel, the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. And remember from last week that we saw that that gospel, that good news, was focused not in Jesus' life, but in his death. However good his life was, the writers wanted above all else to write about his death and still say that that death was good news. Why? Because through his death, Jesus was dealing once and for all with the problem, the disease, the cancer that has affected every human being. The Bible calls it sin this malignant cancer that's affected each one of us and caused the whole of creation to groan under its weight and oppression. So the Gospel then, secondly, we said, was the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because in and through his death, he was dealing with the issue of sin. So instead of being dead on the inside, we can be alive on the inside. Instead of being uh, separated from God, we can be brought back to God. Instead of receiving an eternal death, we can receive as a gift of eternal life. And you may remember at that point, I got rather excited. I promise not to repeat that uh, for fear of us all becoming far too emotional in church, which is always a danger here, isn't it? I'm glad you understood the irony of those comments. Thirdly then, we said last time that if, if it's true, if Jesus' death is dealing with the problem of sin, why? Because it's the only way God knew how to deal with the problem of sin, then this death, this good news, cannot just be for some, it must be for everybody. If this is God's means for us to get back with himself, then we can't go making our own we can't go looking for our own methods our own paths because there is only one and God has made that clear through the death of his son the gospel is for everyone and if you've missed uh, that then take the CD with you as you go or if you have a computer you can listen to it at home or on your MP3, what's it, www.bbcpodcasting.com and it will be there for you to access. And you will get more out of this morning if after this morning you go back and you listen to that if you haven't listened to it uh. Already, and by the way, while you're at bbcpodcasting.com, have a look around now at the rest of our site that is uh, just been uh, redone with all kinds of uh, interesting things. There, as we share our life together in different and ever increasing ways. BurlingtonBaptist.org.uk. So, I asked you last week to come back. Thank you for those of you that did, and if you uh, are here anyway, that's a bonus for all of us. I want us to complete our understanding of this verse because there are some very important things that we didn't say last time that we need to hear today to get the complete picture. And we finish where we were last week. The gospel is for everyone. Let's underline it again. Jesus died not for some people, but for every person in the human race. And it's a refrain that keeps on being repeated again and again and again through the New Testament. Christ died for sins once for all. What Jesus did, he was doing for all people in every place, in every time. It doesn't matter whether you were born in Ipswich or Timbuktu, or whether you lived in the 1st century, the 8th century, the 20th, the 21st century, Doesn't matter whether you are religious or not. Doesn't matter what culture you are from. Doesn't matter whether you were raised in a secular tradition. Doesn't matter whether you naturally would bend to a a, a monotheistic faith or a polytheistic faith. Whether you're an atheist, you don't believe in anything. Or whether you're agnostic, you simply can't make up your mind. Jesus died for everyone. All of us. Why? Because we were all in the same mess. The Bible says over and over and over and over and over again there is an absolute inclusiveness about the death of Christ. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. He said it's a bit offensive being called sheep, but in this regard, we were like sheep. We were that stupid. We just wandered off doing our own thing. All of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of some of us. No. The sin of all of us laid on him. We were all in the same boat. Absolutely nothing to do with social class, nothing to do with religious persuasion, nothing to do with our education, our background, our gifting, our intellect. None of that for all of us. He died for all. For God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't love some of us. He loved all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave. This was a a death that was completely inclusive of every human being. All-encompassing love. That's why when Paul personalizes it, he is absolutely right. And we can do the same thing. Paul writes, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for who? For your sakes. He was writing to the Corinthians. But he might just as well have written to us, either as a block of people or as individuals, yet for your sake, for Eric and for Donald and for Nancy and for Carl and for Katie and for Lawrence and for Stuart and Sue, all the way across this church, for your sakes, each and every one of you, it says, so that you, Eric, Donald, Nancy, all the way across to Barry, and then the next one, off you go, so that you, through his poverty on the cross, might become rich. It's for all of us. It's a great, inclusive act, but there is a huge but, and that's B-U-T, not B-U-double-T. A massive but, and it is this: Christ's death was for all. All will not benefit from his death. Christ's death was totally inclusive, yet the consequences of it will be exclusive only to some. And our text of these two weeks makes it abundantly clear. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone, everyone who believes. There's a condition there, It was for everyone, but to be a recipient of it, to be saved, and we'll think about that in a minute, you need to be someone who believes. The gospel will only be of benefit to those who believe, those who put their trust in him. It's a bit like you buying me a ticket for the cup final or for Wimbledon. In case you haven't thought about that, let me put the idea into your head. Imagine buying me a ticket for Wimbledon. That would be a very kind thing for you to do. You buy me a ticket, and let's make no bones about it. You've paid for it. I don't want one of these envelopes with a ticket with the receipt tucked in as well. You keep that for your own records. You'll need it. But imagine you've bought me this ticket, and then you offer it to me. I have a genuine choice whether or not I take the ticket. You've already paid for it. You have no more choices. You've done it. You've paid. Whether I benefit is my choice. Jesus has already bought the ticket, paid the price. He's done it. Whether you benefit is your choice. He's bought it, paid the price. When he cried out on the cross, it was finished. It wasn't simply that his life was over, but that his life's mission of saving, offering salvation to the world, was complete. And since that day, God has been saying, Hey guys, I've done it. I've paid. I've bought the ticket. Now it's up to you. And some people have said no. A conscious decision to reject. Others have said yes, and we call them Christians. And there are many, many people who simply have yet to make up their mind. The Bible is clear. Salvation is what you get from the cross of Christ through your response of belief in Him. The Christian gospel doesn't sign up to every religion, gets to the same place, and it will all be alright on the night and that kind of stuff. In fact, Jesus' words are quite hard, aren't they? You know, he talks about narrow gates. And narrow gates mean not many people get in and stuff like that. And then there's a wide gate, and it seems like everyone just falls in through there almost by default. small gate is narrow. That's the root gate that leads to life. And only a few find it. Only a few find it. What about this talk about sheep and goats you know we didn't want to be a sheep earlier but let's not be a goat <laughs> something about the end of time people being divided let's go back to that verse that we love for God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and then it gets worse Jesus pushes it home just to make sure there is no mistake. He says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Don't shoot the messenger. For those who haven't believed, it doesn't matter why they haven't believed, whether because they've deliberately chosen not to, not got round to bothering to believe, never really checked it out. Those who aren't believing, it says, just remain outside. They remain outside of this glorious gift of salvation which we're coming to, that Jesus paid the price for on the cross. And if we take the words and the witness of of Scripture seriously, we can't have one without the other, We can't trust God for heaven if we don't believe that maybe there isn't. Offered to all, but received only by some. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. The transforming power of God for each and every life. But who will benefit? Only those who believe. Now what is this belief? Given that most people in our country say they believe in God, will that belief save them mercifully i don't have to judge but from what i understand from the bible it doesn't seem that likely why because believing that god exists is not enough the bible tells us that the devil believes that god exists that the devil believes in his son jesus christ the language of belief in the new testament is a very strong word that includes the language of trust when we travel to wales my children gauge the length of the journey by whether we've gone over the Severn Bridge or not. Severn Bridge takes the M4 uh, out of England, over the River Severn, into Wales. It's a bit like the Orwell Bridge, but about seven or eight times bigger. You have to pay almost £5 to get into Wales. But they decided you'd pay nothing to go back, just in case nobody bothered. So you pay your £5 and you cross over the bridge but there are two important things going on as you cross over the bridge, or two important things going on in your mind before you choose to drive down that road. See, firstly, I have to believe that that bridge is actually there. It's often late at night. I'm travelling a little fast. It's raining, as you would imagine, heading towards Wales. I have to believe the bridge is there. Simply believing the bridge is there will not get me over to the other side. I not only have to trust that it's there, but I have to trust that in the darkness, in the wet, in the rain, in the late hours when nobody else is around, that that bridge will actually do for me what I'm trusting it to do for me, and that's to get me over the River Severn. Notice that if I trust that the bridge is there and it will get other people across, it does absolutely nothing to get me across. I have to trust that it will get me across. I've got to trust it for myself. The belief that saves us, the belief that gets us to the other side with God is not simply believing there is a God, not simply believing there was his son Jesus Christ or even that he died a terrible death. The belief that saves me is the belief that Jesus died for me, that trusting of his death to do for me what it says it will do. Belief in Jesus is to trust him to do for me what I could not do for myself. Which is a long way from your average man in the street who would say, on balance, I probably believe in God. And So we read as Paul summarized it in those verses that Sally kindly read to us, that it's by grace you've been saved. How does that come about? It comes about through faith. It's not about what you do, but it's a gift from God. As you trust him for it. So what does it mean to be saved? I mean, who cares? Are you interested anyway? Are any of us interested? Should we be bothered? What is salvation? It's a churchy word. Uh, and we hate churchy words, don't we? Quite rightly, because in today's world, they, they've lost their meaning. They don't make sense anymore. But we want to make sense of this word. Because it's the word that God's word offers to us to help us understand what he has done and what we can benefit from by believing you see salvation is much more than simply getting to the other side when you die as someone said it's not just pie in the sky when you die but steak on your plate while you wait it's both you see salvation is not something that will happen to me in the future neither is it something that has happened to me in the past Neither is it just something happening to me now. The Bible says that salvation is all of these things. It is past, present and future. You see, firstly, salvation is something that happened to me when I trusted Christ. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Paul writes, he says, Before you came to Christ, it was like this. You were dead. You were dead in your transgressions. is just another word for sins, really. You were dead in your sins. And you were dead in more sins. But what happened? But what happened when you take, took that step of trust, of belief that we were just talking about? Well, he goes on to say, God, because of his great love, <clears throat> and because he is rich in mercy, what did he do? He made us alive with christ even when we were dead in our transgressions even when i was dead in my sin what did he do for me he made me alive you have been saved from being dead at the core of your being to having god's life at the core of your being that is something that has actually happened to you when you put your faith in jesus christ And just in case they didn't get it in chapter 2, Paul goes at them again in chapter 5 and says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Life without Christ, he says, is like being dead, but with Christ you're alive. Life without Christ is like being in the dark, but now you are in the light. In fact, here it's worse than that. He doesn't say you were in the darkness or you were like the darkness, Paul says, before you met Jesus and he began to work in your life, you were darkness. At the core of your being, you were not about the things of light, but you were about the things of the dark. What a terrible place to be. To know that at the core of your being, there was darkness. That's not my judgment on your condition. I wouldn't dare. That's God's reflection on us without Christ. It's it's not just like that. It is the dark. Perpetual dark. But what a fantastic change. You were darkness, but now you are light. A fundamental, objective change. Something that has already happened when you became a Christian. You used to belong to the darkness and sometimes you did good things. Now you belong to the light, and sometimes you do dark things. But your status has fundamentally changed and in case the Ephesians didn't get it he wrote to the Colossians and said it's like this you've been rescued now from the dominion of darkness you've been literally freed taken out of this rule of darkness this reign of darkness and you've been brought into the kingdom of the son he loves the kingdom of light I'm out of one kingdom and into another And then even more radical still, in case the Ephesians didn't get it and the Colossians didn't get it, I'll have a go at the Corinthians. And this time I'll really crank it up. I'll make it as obvious as I possibly can. And he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. What was the old dark at the core? What was the old deadness at the core? What's happened? That's gone. Hallelujah. The new has come. The new has come. The old Gone. Past tense. It has finished. You see, the penalty of sin kept me outside of God's life. I was dead on the inside. The penalty of God's sin kept me in the dark instead of in His light. I was outside of His kingdom. That's the penalty of sin. Just to be outside of God, to be outside of His life, His light, His love his kingdom, his family, just to be cut off from him, to be separated from him. That's what sin does. You see, the penalty of sin doesn't just make us guilty before God. It excludes us from being part of him, from belonging to his kingdom, from being a member of his family. But as a Christian, I've been saved from all of that. I've been saved in the past from the uh, penalty of sin. Not only have I been forgiven, which is proof that I've been saved, but I've been welcomed back into his family. Another evidence, another piece of evidence that the penalty of sin has been dealt with in my life. The Holy Spirit living in you is a guarantee, Paul says. It's absolute proof that the penalty of sin in your life is now over. Why? Because if it wasn't, at the core of your being would not be the Holy Spirit, would be the, would, would be the darkness that Paul was talking about when he wrote to these Ephesians. That's okay, isn't it? Fancy some of that? Both of you. Great. (laughs) God's changing the world one life at a time. Hallelujah. See, his spirit, when his spirit tingles in my inner being, I know the penalty of sin's over for me. Because if it wasn't, he wouldn't be there. Hallelujah. Secondly, secondly, not only have I been saved from the penalty of sin, And you'll be glad about this one. I am being saved from the power of sin. Not quickly enough, you might say, but I am being saved from the power of sin. We can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that sin isn't very powerful. We don't rate it anymore in our world as a force to be reckoned with. We don't regard it as our real enemy. See, if I want to get on in my life, then I I read the books that are on my shelf and there are things like, I don't literally mean my shelf, although I'm sure you'll find these there. Busyness, if only I could manage my time better. Stress, if only I could reduce my stress. Assertiveness, if only I could get my point across better. Self-esteem, if only I could feel better about myself. If I could resolve some of these internal problems, then my life would surely soar to new heights. Let's be very clear, everybody. You're okay with the truth this morning, aren't you? You see, let's be, let's just be, cards on the table. You see, your biggest problem is exactly the same as mine. It's sin. We have in our modern day lost that awareness that there's something called sin. That is awful. It is utterly awful. Why? Because it is totally destructive. And it ruins everything in this life that's good. Sin has slipped, though, from our vocabulary. We dance around it these days with gentle euphemisms that protect us from its harshness. Nobody sins anymore. People just live differently or alternatively. But nobody sins. And even if we have been caught and exposed and you have to admit that something isn't quite right, we say sorry for a mistake as if it was just a a, a missing apostrophe in an English test. You see, in our commitment to get on in life, We've exchanged the seven deadly sins for the seven habits of highly effective people. I suspect many of us here can't name the seven deadliest sins. Some? You see, but generally in life, they're not on our page anymore, are they? They don't roll off the tongue. They haven't been drilled into you at Sunday school. Maybe they have if you're of a previous generation but two or three. They're not on our horizon anymore. But yet, you know, our Christian forebears drummed into one another that there were seven categories of sin that basically covered all sins. That if you got involved in them in any way, shape, or form, they totally screwed up your lives. And they screwed up your relationships. And they screwed up the people around you. And if you're in the church, it screwed up the church. And if you're at work, it screwed up your workplace. Because these things were deadly. A bit of poison on your lips or in your mind was utterly destructive and so these Christian people wanting to live for God in his new way got their minds and their hearts really alert to what these things were. Why? Because they destroy everything that's good that comes from God. You see when I sin God is wounded and when I sin I put distance between myself and him and that's not good for anybody. And when I sin, I trample on my relationships with others. My sin says to them they don't matter, and that stinks. And when I sin, it rubbishes me because it robs me of the the image that God has placed in me and entrusted to me. My sin is destructive. It never makes me content. It never produces any good. It always hurts somebody, and I'm less of a person for it. And God's image is marred every time I sin. You say, Simon, I didn't know you sinned that much. Don't you believe it? And yet while I know in my head that the sin is absolute madness, that sinfulness is an act of gross stupidity for which there is no excuse, whilst I know that, I find I cannot break it. Its hold on me is too strong. And that's exactly what Paul was saying all those years ago. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. He goes on, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if anyone could have been good by sheer guts and determination, I reckon it was this guy. He had zeal and passion for Jesus like we rarely see. He was determined in his life. Could he resolve the power of sin by his self-effort? No, no. He sounds just like me. What a wretch man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Say this with me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can't rescue ourselves. And do you know I'm going to make a huge presumption in these next few moments? I'm going to presume that the problem I've just shared with you ever so personally is exactly the same that you're facing too. But part of the package of salvation is God's power to rescue us. I am being saved from the power of sin, bit by bit, and I'm afraid it's bit by bit. It's never going to be fast enough for those around any of us. But bit by bit, God is at work breaking the power of sin in my life and He does it how? By the work of His Holy Spirit. Well, Romans 7 talks about this wretchedness. Romans 8 talks about a new way to live. Not by this sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God. The bad fruit which sin produces in me is being replaced as I trust in Him by the good fruit of the Spirit. So we are being saved. you need some of that in your life? A few more. Hallelujah. We do, don't we? Man, sin is just rubbish. Ugly. There isn't a word that sums it up. The trouble is the, the words stand over the top. Why? Because we haven't got a handle on how bad it is. And if you really want to understand how bad it is, look at the cross. That's how bad sin is. That's what sin is. Does That's the awfulness of it. The only way God could redeem us from it. How terrible was that? But I am being saved. So that we, together, with unveiled faces, all reflect the Lord's glory. Because we're being transformed into his likeness, which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. Don't try harder. Trust a lot more. It's his work in Us. Which area of your life is Christ saving at the moment? Maybe you know the answer to that question, and that's fantastic if you do. Maybe you're not sure, and maybe as you just survey in your mind, there are just so many areas you need Him and long for Him to save. Where do I start? Well, just start with one, the obvious one, anyone, it doesn't really matter. He'll forgive you if you start with the wrong one. Start with one. God, sort this out in my life because it's robbing me of all you want me to be. Your biggest worry is if you can't think of anything that's wrong. Then you're in trouble. Believe me. Become so used to the things that are wrong in our lives, we no longer see them as wrong anymore. The destructive power works in us unnoticed. If you dare ask God to show you, he'll show you. He'll show you not to condemn you, but to free you from it. How good is that? I have been saved from the penalty of sin. But if my life is going to count, if I'm going to become more like Jesus and become increasingly disposed to those good works that he's prepared for me to do, then I need to be saved. Not just day by day or even hour by hour. I must be saved, oh God, minute by minute from the power of sin that lies in wait to trap me. And then finally, in one minute. Finally, I will be saved from the presence of sin. I will be saved from the presence of sin. And God raised us up in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. God's work in me will come to a conclusion. A conclusion. The whole of the Bible builds and anticipates to the day when God's saving work in all his people will be complete. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Everything will be made made new. And what will that be like? Well, it will be very different, you see. He will wipe every tear from our eyes and for the first time in the history of planet earth since the fall, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Broken hearts, broken relationships, battered lives, sickness, death, decay, all gone as we believe in him to take us to his eternal home. You see, all pain is caused by sin. Your pain is caused by sin, either your own sin or somebody else's sin or often quite a bit of both. And the pain that we experience today is very real. And you've heard me talk on this enough times to know that I understand what we're talking about when we talk about pain that's real. For some of you today, the pain that you are experiencing in your lives seems almost too much for you to cope with. And each day you wonder whether you'll get through to the next. And into that situation, Paul seems to say something that is incredibly insensitive. He has this phrase, our light and momentary troubles. What a slap for hurting people. How offensive for him to say that my troubles are light and momentary. What does he know about my troubles anyway? But before your hackles rise further still, look a little closer. Paul says, our light and momentary troubles he's talking about himself and to be fair you don't need to read much about Paul to know that his troubles and his sufferings were huge in this life they were life dominating issues sometimes for him all-consuming and yet he writes light and momentary troubles his weren't what did he mean for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our present troubles that seem so great, so overwhelming, so life-consuming, are, compared to the glory that's coming, light and momentary. And so he would write in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings, and for Paul they were huge Sometimes for us they are huge. But they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That will be the moment when we will be saved from the presence of sin. That'll be the moment when the good work that God began in you when you became a Christian comes to completion. And that's what we anticipate every single day. As we allow Him to continue that work in our lives, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it really is the power of God. Who's it for? For salvation for everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. Let's have a moment of quiet, everybody. It's too important, I think, just for us to miss these moments. You see, at the end of the day, it's not my words that matter. They don't matter one moment. But if these things be true, if they be the truth to us from God's word, then they matter more than anything else. And maybe there are some of us who just sense that we've never got to that place of knowing that we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We feel outside God's kingdom. We don't feel we're in yet. It's a simple step of thanking Jesus Christ for his death. Thanking that his death was for you. And asking that what he did on the cross, asking what he bought on the cross, might be made real for you in your life. And in that moment of believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for the sins of the world, in that moment, you come out of the kingdom of darkness into the glorious kingdom of the light of God. And for some of us, maybe that work of salvation ground to a halt maybe last week, maybe a few years ago, but we're just conscious that we got stuck and God's saving work isn't really a present reality in us. When we became a Christian, we were changed, but we haven't changed much recently. Oh God, highlight that one area in our lives where you want to start working again. And help us to see how desperately stupid sin is how utterly destructive it is, how awful it is for us and for others. And Lord, will you save us from it today? Even this day, save us from crippling wrong attitudes. Save us from bitterness and anger and twisted motives. Save us from, uh, from our loose tongue, from our flippancy with you and with others. Save us from our stubborn, willful ways. Save us from those things that have bound us by the power of your cross. And Lord, would you give us all great hope for the future. That even though some of us might be feeling the weight of this life just now, It feels like the weight is as big as it possibly could be. And yet, compared to the glory that's coming, they will turn out to be light and momentary. Hallelujah. Build confidence in our hearts in this Gospel. That we might not be ashamed of it and declare it as the power of God and trust in it as a church to do its work for the honour and the glory of Jesus, until that day when all is done and all is new. Amen.